Welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host, Dr. Reed Robison, and I are joined for the second time on the show by Dr. Amy Della Garza. Amy's a board-certified family practice physician who provides specialized care for patients with behavioral health and substance use disorder diagnoses. She uses an integrative approach sometimes called lifestyle medicine, which addresses nutrition, movement, sleep, stress management, and social connection in her efforts to help. In this episode, you'll hear about how the bacteria in your gut affect your mental health, what causes problems like gut dysbiosis and leaky gut, how to optimize your gut health, and, um, and a lot of really bad jokes as I attempt to keep things you know, as immature as possible while we talk about poop. If you like what you hear, please consider liking and subscribing if you're watching on YouTube. If you're listening on a podcast app, please give us a rating and review. This helps boost the signal and so that we can reach more people who might benefit from this content. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at psychfrontiers at novamind.ca. You can also find Reed and myself on Instagram. Reed is at innerspacedoctor, and I am at Dr. Steve Thayer. So without further ado, I bring you Dr. Amy Del Garza. All right, we're back at it again here on Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers. We have invited Dr. Amy De La Garza back. This is your second appearance on the podcast, yeah? Yep. We invited for having her, me back. Of course. And uh, we invited her back to talk about all kinds of shit. <laughs> Quite literally. So today we're going to talk about um, the gut-brain connection. This is something I have been interested in for a long time. Ever since I heard that it's possible that the, what are the two to four pounds of bacteria that live in your body to be controlling this meat puppet that we're walking around in, or at least contributing to its behavior. So I wanted to talk about the connection between the gut microbiome and other biomes and our mental health, um, physical health as it affects mental health, and maybe ways that we can influence that microbiome to optimize. Your meat puppet analogy was a little bit jarring enough, and now you've got like the weight of your fecal matter <laughs> thrown into the mix. See, it's I, I went in hot on There's the intro nothing today. Great about it, <laughs> despite its importance. Yes, it's yeah. kind of gross. I love my meat puppet. I mean, I, I love this body. Let's just be let's be upfront. I wasn't trying to denigrate the human body. <laughs> so yeah, where shall we begin? Perhaps we can talk about what the gut microbiome is, because a lot of people. We'll hear microbiome and say, what? And then some people probably know a lot about it who listen to this podcast. So um, for everyone in between, what is the gut microbiome? So the microbiome is the, so the gut, we have bugs that live everywhere, right? So like on our skin, in our respiratory tract, and then in our GI tract, and in our urogenitary tract. Is that how you say that? Urogenital. 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 Genito urinary. Um, yeah. We live in <laughs> like this from? symbiotic relationship with all of these other organisms. So, bacteria, virus, protozoa, um, yeast as well. Um, and the gut is just one place where they live. So, the gut microbiome is just the DNA, actually, it's the genetic collection of all of the organisms that live in the gut. So microbiota are the actual bugs themselves. Microbiome is the collection of genetic material. And so it's not actually the organisms themselves that are important. It's what they do, which mm -hmm. is directed 
like us by our DNA. And it dwarfs our DNA's diversity, right? I mean, oh, Steve, yeah. Steve mentioned this two to four pounds metric, and it is interesting that what does the brain weigh? 1.4 kilos, and the microbiome weighs like two kilos at least. Um, but interestingly, in the human body, there are, what, twenty to 30,000 genes, and in the microbiome, 20 million. Yeah, right? yep like 22 million or something like that. I mean, it's crazy the amount of genetic material that they contribute to our well-being, I guess. Mm -hmm. So do they directly inter interact with our genes? Is there Do they affect gene expression? Like yes. mRNA expression in the human body? For sure. There's, Definitely. There's also that mind-gut axis that has the interaction with the nervous system, like mm -hmm. the vagal nerve or the neuroendocrine system. So they, you know, the, uh, the microbiome uh, kind of either directly stimulates the nervous system or through uh, neurochemicals, it has a downstream effect. Yeah. So how connected are we talking about here? Like, you know, one of the things I wanted to explore was, could, could you attribute, let's say, somebody's major depression to simply something going on in their gut is it you know mm -hmm. we, we try not to oversimplify things because yeah. human beings aren't simple but i think well i mean i like to think of the gut as affecting our brain like in four different ways mm -hmm. um and i don't know if you could contribute like i don't know if someone with depression you can contribute everything to what's going on in their gut but I think you could contribute a lot of so what's going on in the gut depends and the brain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like there are many types of depression, right? Like we've done a, an episode on this right. only scratching the surface, but mm -hmm. you could, you could see how if someone had a serious, uh, like GI condition, like that's, uh, debilitating their life. That's like one oversimplified way. It might be a large contributing factor to their depression. But, but if, you know, I do agree that there are many factors and it's different for everyone and it's this individualized approach. But if you look at the studies, like there are some recent ones um, linking depression to people who took antibiotics, but not antivirals, not an antifungals. And they even linked it to two specific uh, strains of bacteria in the gut. That, and, uh, but then interestingly, like there are a number of positive studies around probiotics and depression, but they're small. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a relatively minor effect size. One of the bigger ones and more recent ones, um, they took people admitted to a psych unit with serious depression. They added a probiotic versus placebo, and there was no difference. And it doesn't mean there isn't a difference that exists, but in a, in a population that was hospitalized and getting hospital care and getting like vitamins like zinc and biotin and whatever else they started that are also helpful for other reasons. Um, the potential difference that maybe other studies picked up on just wasn't detectable. Mm -hmm. um, suggesting like in that population with a complicated multifactorial illness, it's, you know, it may not be the number one factor for that condition anyway. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we can talk about this, like when we start talking about how can we positively affect the microbiome mm -hmm. to influence our behavioral health. I think um, a lot of times when they do studies with probiotics, um, I just, I have this thing about 
medicine being like the cure for everything. So it's like the same with probiotics. Like people that are in hospitals get fed really terrible food and yeah. they've probably, probably been eating terrible food for a long time and not you, – you can't – like you can't probiotic away a bad diet just like you can't exercise away a bad diet. Mm. You know what I mean? It's so got nothing on hospital I think, food. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean hospital food is – tragic in my opinion. Yeah. But um but if you're talking about how does the gut influence how we feel mm-hmm. or um how anxious we are or how we um use risky substances things like that. Um I think it's sort of a f- they work together in four really important ways and um I mean the first way is through the hypothalamic pituitary axis. So that's like our fight or flight axis. Um So when we're stressed, we release cortisol, um, and cortisol directly influences the health of the gut by damaging the integrity of the lining of the gut. If it's too present? Because we need cortisol too, right? We need cortisol, but I'm talking about chronic chronic stress that is probably, in my opinion, and trauma, the root Mm. cause of all depression, anxiety, bipolar, everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so when the excessive cortisol damages the gut lining, you were it saying. does. Okay. So, you know, the gut is lined by one cell. It's just one cell layer, layer thick. Um, enterocyte is the name of the cell. Um, and right under that that lining is this huge immune surveillance system. It's called the gut associated lymphoid tissue or the GALT, um, and Cortisol is just one thing that starts to sort of break apart that nice, healthy lining by breaking apart the Mm -hmm. proteins that hold the cells together Mm -hmm. um, and damaging the cells themselves. And so then you'll get cortisol um, and all of the junk that we eat leaking into this gut-associated lymphoid tissue and setting off this huge immune response. It's not a directed immune response. It's more of a general immune response that creates all of these proteins. Um, and those proteins, those inflammatory proteins, get into the bloodstream and go right to the brain and cause neuroinflammation. And that has been neuroinflammation has been associated with the development yeah. of all kinds of behavioral health disorders. So that's a really important um thing that I talk to patients about, I'm always talking about the HPA axis, but um, the HPA axis through trauma, through stress, um, directly affects the health of the gut. Um, so yeah. that's what they mean by inflammation, by leaky gut leading to an autoimmune condition and, it, totally. and systemic inflammation, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So the leaky gut meaning uh, the perforation of this, le- this layer, this protective cellular layer, yeah. such that like the foods that you eat or these core, whatever is in your gut can get into the bloodstream and go systemic. Yeah. We don't call it leaky gut anymore. It's really gut hyperpermeability. That's like that's the more esoteric scientific name. Leaky yeah. gut conjures up some weird visuals. I have a hole in my yeah. intestine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But my, <laughs> my husband would always be like, when I was first getting into this, mm-hmm. I may have mentioned this on the first podcast, so I'm sorry if I did, but he would always be like, oh, what are you doing? Are you learning about all that weird leaky gut stuff? <laughs> I'm like, it's not leaky gut. It's gut hyperpermeability. But yeah, I mean, that destruction of that lining um, is very bad. 
And I should put a disclaimer on that study because like Amy pointed out, like it doesn't mean any anything just because one study wasn't positive, especially when there were a number. And there's some clear confounding variables on that. But what's interesting on what Amy's talking about is there are these studies, like really interesting animal studies where they gave mice a certain like mycobacterium and uh, in the context of a lot of stress coming at you and showed some like significant protection from that inflammation and the downstream negative effects by having this certain like healthy strain of bacteria in the microbiome on board hmm. you know and extrapolating that to humans needs a disclaimer too like we're just scratching the surface of of understanding this like this diverse uh like but important thing that we call the microbiome yeah, yeah. i have a mouse model hobby horse that i'll get on sometime and complain about but yeah <laughs> of, of extrapolating it yeah too too yeah. soon yeah 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 because yeah, there's that translational leap that you've got to get as close to the real population you're studying and we are in fact a little bit different than mice right just a smidge yeah yeah but it's a start well, and, and the mice, just a little snippet of my hobby. The mice that they raise to test in labs are not identical to wild mice. And I just, I, I read this whole thing about it. I'm assuming yeah. it's true. Um, so, so like the, the research on telomeres, for example, like was totally off because the, the, the mice they were using to test their theories on uh, had artificially long or short, I can't remember, telomeres because they were breeding them in Oh, they were like genetically or modified yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And totally off, meaning like not as uh, applicable broadly to the human population in the wild or even the mouse population in the wild. But right. you got to start somewhere in research with the most controlled setting, but you have to continue it on from there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it is important to remember all the disclaimers of how to study a st study and test a test, but also the big picture of how this fits into. Yeah, uh, it's just a little pet peeve of mine because a lot, a lot of the like the supplements that you see advertised or whatever, mm -hmm. um, and they say, you know, research backed or empirically supported or this was proven too. Yeah. A lot of those are based on non-human experiments, right? They're based on yeah. mouse models. And so, yeah, like we were saying, if you don't know how to interpret data behind the claims, then you can either be wasting your money or hurting yourself. Because the FDA doesn't get so hands-on with supplement claims right. uh, like they do with um, prescribable drugs. Right. Anyway, back to Amy. <laughs> you gave us number one. Mm -hmm. What's number two? What's you, the list oh, we're on? Yeah. Oh, the <laughs> list of ways in oh, the cool. gut. Oh, yeah. So the second, um, the second one, um, and I'm not listing this in priority. Maybe it is priority, but so the vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. Yeah biggest nerve connecting the brain and the gut and the, or the brain and the rest of the body. What happens in the vagus nerve stays Paris in the vagus nerve? Yes. It's very, <laughs> very <Bad> important. <laughs> so did you um, just make that up? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Parasympathetic trademark. system. So like calming system as opposed to fight or flight. Rest and digest. Rest and digest. Mm. That's from medical school. That stuck. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. the one thing That's we tried remember. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Fight or flight hasn't and been rest and digest. <laughs> Apparently, it's incomplete, though. It's like fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. Like, you get these other Fs that are added to it. <laughs> so they didn't even give us the whole story. You can add more that. Fs. Yeah, lots of Fs. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I, have very, I don't have any more Fs to give. Sorry. I... <laughs> um, what are we talking vagus about? Vagus nerve. Oh, vagus nerve. Yeah. Mm. So vagus nerve uh, innervates. The oh now Reed you can jump in with all of your 
cells that you found out about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But vagus nerve innervates the gut. Um, And when we are stressed again, and the system is sort of tipped away from the vagus nerve and towards like our fight or flight sympathetic system, um, the vagus is the vagus nerve's ability to sort of regulate some of the microbiome activity and the neuroendocrine cells Mm -hmm. in the gut activity, um, again, leads to sort of this increased gut hyperpermeability and inflammation. Mm -hmm. So if the vagus nerve isn't allowed to sort of do its job because the system is on high alert all the time, um, then we run into trouble with an unhappy gut um, and an unhappy brain. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us about those cells. I have a, I have a story instead. Okay. Um, well, about the cells. Is it a story <laughs> like, about cells? Well, yeah. No, well, kill two birds with one stone. <laughs> yeah, story about the cells because they both come from med school. Like in med school, like we were just saying, um, a lot of what is known now we didn't even know back then. Like we, yeah. the collective we of uh, science, um, like these neuropod cells that are in the gut and directly innervate or touch the vagus nerve, for example. But but my story is more around the mind-gut axis. When I was in med school, um, yeah, or early residency, maybe first year, when you're working like mad, you're working... Back then, the caps were just coming, like 80 hours a week as a cap was uh, starting to kick in and be enforced. But but when I was spending every fourth night overnight in the hospital and on a rotation like surgery where the stakes are high, the stress is high, I remember one rotation I was on where um, it was particularly stressful. The chief resident was a ball of stress, and that was contagious where um, one person in our group started, like, losing their hair. And then one and another one is just, like, becoming so irritable, can't sleep. And then for me, just one day, I'm like, oh, I have good stress tolerance, resilience, um, going with the flow. But then one day I had this belly pain that I'd never had before. And one of my few times I've ever gone to an ER (laughs) and the only CAT scan I've ever had in my life. Um, And the findings were completely normal. The blood were completely normal. And uh, I chalk it up to this day to that's how stress manifested in my body. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the same as you. Like as soon as I experience a lot of stress or fear or whatever it is, fight or flight, like I'm nauseated. I have no appetite. I have abdominal cramps. And like there are so many kids, right, that get worked up for this functional abdominal pain. Mm-hmm. Pediatric functional abdominal pain is is all related to stress and the vagal input. And there's no reason for these kids to have abdominal pain. But mm-hmm. if you look into what's happening in their life um, and the stresses that they're experiencing, it, like that's what oh, it yeah, is for sure. It's uh, one of my most important screening questions with pediatric anxiety is around, you know, belly pain and missing school and all that. Yeah. 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 It's the first thing I ask people about after I ask them about their mental health, if that's what they're coming to see me for. How's your belly? Like, Mm -hmm. what's your belly feel like? Oh my God, my stomach has hurt my whole life. Mm -hmm. Or, Mm -hmm. oh, as soon as my, as soon as I got a divorce, like my stomach has been hurting. I'm bloated. I have diarrhea, you know? So it's, it's so intimately 
connected in that way. A lot of serotonin receptors there too. Well, yeah. So that leads us to the third um, sort of pot that I like to like container um, that I think of as when I think about the connection and that's the production of neurotransmitters. So Mm -hmm. um, not only are there a lot of receptors for neurotransmitters in the gut, but about 90% of our serotonin is made in our gut. Made by by the bacteria? Made by the bacteria. Interesting. Yeah. Same with dopamine, same with acetylcholine. So um, we have a factory of neurotransmitter production in our gut um, that either goes out through the bloodstream um, and crosses the blood-brain barrier and affects the brain directly, um, or it modulates vagal input to the brain. So, um, yeah, and I mean, there are certain types of bacteria, most in mouse models, that have been associated with production of certain neurotransmitters, mm-hmm. which is probably true in humans as well. So, um, and if we have an imbalance of the bugs that make neurotransmitters, um, if we have more pathogenic bugs than helpful bugs, which is called dysbiosis, um, then our ability to produce neurotransmitters is is probably significantly affected. So you mentioned that there are uh, receptor sites in the gut. I've, I've heard it said there are more receptors, like uh, neuron receptors, what would you call those? Just receptor sites in the gut than there are in the brain. Is that accurate? Have you heard that? I don't know stat? if that's accurate, but I mean, the gut is Probably definitely matter, called but... the second brain right, just gut... because yeah. of the amount of production of neurotransmitters and the amount of neural innervation mm-hmm. within the gut. So, um, yeah. Should it be the first brain? I don't know either, but right. but uh, there's both. a lot going on there. And in, to the point where when we prescribe certain psych meds, like for depression, for example, um, some of them will have a GI upset side effect. And, you know, what I'll try to do with that is do enough psychoeducation and counseling and heads up in advance to be like, okay, this brief, time-limited uh, discomfort, nausea, may actually be a sign that we're on to something. We're starting to hit some receptors. And let's let's uh, kind of ride the wave of that, you know, within reason to the other side because we might be getting some good um, neurotransmitter effects once it uh, kicks in, at least in the traditional antidepressant model of taking a few weeks. Mm. Yeah. There was a GI doc at um, St. Mark's. First name was Holly. I can't remember her last name, but she actually did a study looking at um, the use of sertraline or Zoloft in patients with irritable bowel. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's because their brain calmed down or their gut calmed down or both, like which came first, but um, she had some pretty good results with reduction in irritable bowel. Hmm. Um, IBS symptoms in patients who are taking sertraline. Mm-hmm. And often if I have a, a really anxious person um, I'll, and they have a lot of gut complaints, I'll often try sertraline first because of that. Um, anecdotally, I think I've had good experience with it. Yeah. And interestingly, it is one with more of the initial uh, GI upset as one of the side effects as you're starting it. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, like you said, maybe it's actually doing something in that area you know another random aside uh, this is on the vagus nerve piece one of my first clinical trials early in my career was uh, implanting vagal nerve stimulators 
um, here for severe, severe treatment-resistant depression. Reed pointed to his chest for the people who are watching. Oh, yeah, here. (laughs) Um, Like just under the surface of the skin in the chest sternum area where we we would set it with this pretty cool device that you could like magnetic device to set it to go and deliver a certain number of pulses every at a certain frequency to stimulate the vagus nerve and it was evidence-based fda approved for uh severe trd Hmm. that's so like so do you think it was i like you have to wonder if it was working more on the gut than anything else well i think it's more the gut is hitting that important uh highway information yeah. highway uh, right. of the nervous system yeah, yeah. so yeah. what's the what's the fourth container oh well let me say one more thing about the the third one the sort of the metabolic function yeah. of the of the microbiome um in addition to neurotransmitters metabolically they produce these things called short chain fatty acids um the the most important one being butyrate. And you can actually test people's poop for butyrate, um, among many other things. But um, short-chain fatty acids protect the lining of the gut. So they're really important for like that integrity that we talked about. They help um, diversify the microbiome. So more short-chain fatty acids equals more healthy bugs. Um, But short-chain fatty acids are also really important for helping um, with we think neuroplasticity and and neuronal health in the brain. So they travel through the blood-brain barrier up into the brain, and they probably also modulate microglial activity. Um, so microglia are the cells that probably like I call them like the trash collectors in the brain. Mm. Um, they turn on at night and they sort of clean up the junk. Um, and probably help with the neuroplasticity and learning. But um, so short chain fatty acids modulate those cells. So you don't want too much microglial activity. You don't want too little. Um, you just kind of want just right. And so um, short chain fatty acids probably help with that as well. So really important. And then the fourth, um, the fourth thing to think about is this idea of like bacterial endotoxemia or lipopolysaccharide. So this is like really gross, but bacteria have these little like hairs on the outside, lipopolysaccharide. And when the gut is hyperpermeable, that can like leak into the system um, and create this inflammatory state. Um, And then the brain, because of inflammation, will turn on different sort of enzymes like um, nitric oxide synthetase, um, which creates oxidative stress in the brain, which is bad, right? Like we don't want oxidative stress anywhere. Um, Definitely not in the brain. So, and that nitric oxide um, production has been shown to influence development of depression, anxiety, even schizophrenia, definitely substance use disorder. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, very important to keep the gut lining healthy, to keep good diversity in the gut to sort of help this HPA axis, this vagal, um, this vagal process, the metabolic function of the bugs, and then decreasing the leakage of lipopolysaccharide. So those are the four ways. Mm. So in summary, you you need a healthy gut microbiome Mm -hmm. for your neurotransmitter production, for your um, nervous system. Yeah, health. your anti-inflammatory skills, mm-hmm. your nervous system health. What was the last one? 
just it was more neuroinflammation, but it was at the at the result of these lipopolysaccharides. Basically, these like bacteria poop that gets into your. That, <laughs> yes, that's like kind of how I think about it, which I think is so gross. But it's like, it's like the poop should stay where it's supposed to stay on the on, inside the colon, and all of the shit that leaks out shouldn't be there and causes a lot of inflammation. Yeah, makes sense you know? to me. Um, the other thing that the microbiome does that I think is so important that doesn't get enough press for sure is in weight management. So mm -hmm. like strictly metabolic function, the way that um, we deal with insulin, um, blood sugars, and just basic digestion has a huge effect on weight. And so... Um, and we know that people that are overweight are more inflamed. They have more blood sugar fluctuations, um, which can lend to behavioral health diagnoses. So, yeah, the bug, the microbiome is really important. I heard uh, Stephen Gundry. I think he's a he wrote a book called Unlocking the Keto Code, where I hmm. uh, heard an interview with him where he talked about this concept. Uh, that your gut microbiome kind of mitigates how men, how much of the caloric intake is converted in and stored versus that's passed through the gut. He said something about mitochondrial coupling or uncoupling. I don't know. I'm not mm -hmm. a cell biologist, but it was just an interesting idea that like the health of your gut microbiome, as you said, could influence whether or not calories are used for energy production, whether they're just stored or whether they're passed through in your feces. Yep. And we should say, we should make yeah. a disclaimer. Like we're, we're talking about gut health. We're going to talk about how gut health uh, affects body composition as body composition relates to, to a person's health. And we're going to talk later about the foods that you eat that can influence your gut. Um, and we know that this is, you know, this is a podcast run by mental health professionals and that a lot of people can get really, really triggered by, uh, by conversations around food conversations around excluding certain food types like elimination diets and yeah. conversations that talk about body composition. So I think we should just say it explicitly that we're, we're talking about these things about food choice, about body composition as it relates direct directly to your, your gut health and your mental health that is downstream from that. Uh, we're not making any assertions about like what's beautiful and what's not like what's acceptable and what's yeah. not. We're not making claims that you can't be, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but that you can't be what society might deem overweight and still be healthy and still be beautiful. All those things are yeah, possible. I'm a big fan of the health at any size movement, yeah. intuitive eating, of course. And I appreciate the disclaimer a lot because as an eating disorder physician and professional, like, you know, I, I've seen the dark side of, you know, diet culture of, uh, Elimination diet's gone wild, and and I'll tell you, if you have or have had an eating disorder, um, even if you feel like you're in full recovery, like if you're going to embark on like an elimination diet, for example, there should be a skilled eating disorder dietitian on board, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. and then you approach it differently without eliminating so much at once or whatever it may be. Um, because, yeah, sometimes there are serious health conditions. Like you could look at, you know, celiac as one um, in a small, small percentage of the population um, where, you know, you need to do some of that to get a clear diagnosis and there's a clear intervention. There's a lot of gray area in between that mm -hmm. we could, you know, maybe for another topic, the whole yeah, like... the gluten conundrum. Yeah, like, but, uh, yeah, but no, thank, thank you for the disclaimer, Steve, because I think it's important. Yeah, I mean, I was... I was 
kind of earlier talking about my skepticism around supplements and the the claims made about supplements. And I think, you know, there's an, there's an entire industry dedicated to convincing you that you're not enough as you are, and that you need to buy my thing in order to be enough. Uh, I've heard it called the, you know, the diet industrial complex or the bikini industrial complex. I like the whole industrial complex because it's kind of, mm-hmm. it makes you think of the military industrial complex that everybody, of course, hates and is afraid of. Um, so yeah, we need to be aware of the influences on our beliefs about our acceptability and uh, desirability. That mm-hmm. if we're being convinced we're not enough so that someone can sell us something, then that's uh, not something we want to let into our hearts and minds. Amen. And with that, a word from our sponsor, Butcher Box. <laughs> yeah. Just kidding. We're sponsored by <laughs> Athletic Greens by Organifi. Yeah. <laughs> no, we have no sponsors. <laughs> Don't get any. <laughs> Those are annoying anyway. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I was, I wondered if maybe we could talk about the ways in which, like, why don't we all have a perfectly healthy gut microbiome? Like there's a lot of forces that affect our gut microbiome that might explain why we're not just walking around with uh, perfectly balanced and healthy bugs in our guts. So the things that sort of come to the top of my mind are um, cesarean section births for a lot of kids I've heard says like a vaginal birth supplies the child with its first exposure to healthy bacteria. And that's not to say that a cesarean section birth, you know, the child can't be healthy. And, but you hear some doctors even Hmm. taking some of the fluid, uh, from the vaginal canal and like putting it in the mouth of babies that are born cesarean section, just to give them some of that healthy bacteria. Um, of course there's the rampant use of antibiotics when they weren't needed. Think all the powers that be for antibiotics. But, um, you know, there was just a a time in in society when we were given antibiotics for everything. Oh, we still are. Antibiotics are (laughs) so overused. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And they wipe the gut. They wipe out the gut every time we have a course of antibiotics. Right. What do you think of, uh, just a side question, because every time I have to take an antibiotic, I'll make sure I'm eating, I'll take a probiotic and make sure I'm having a ton of yogurt or kefir or sauerkraut, kimchi, whatever. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Antibiotic associated diarrhea in the pediatric and the adult population um, has some of the best evidence for um, probiotic use. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at all of the data about probiotics, which like, there's like a whole probiotic digest that you can subscribe to. But um, of all the data about the utility of probiotics, the best data is antibiotic-associated diarrhea and prophylactic use um, and uh, ulcerative colitis Mm. are probably two of the – that has the best data, like A-level data. I think I even saw a specific – probiotic product for traveler's diarrhea prophylaxis that stacks up against like antibiotic prophylaxis. Hmm. Oh yeah. Taking a probiotic when you're going to a place where you're going to be exposed to potential pathogens. I don't know what the data is on that, but like, that's a very good idea. Mm -hmm. The criticism I've heard about probiotic products is that they're often uh, a very small collection of strains and that you can get an imbalance in your gut if you're just feeding this one particular kind. Yeah, you have to be really careful with probiotics, I think. Because you want a diverse population down there, right? Yep. You want a diverse population. So you want a diverse population of bugs and you want enough numbers of bugs. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, there's like, like I said, there's so much research associated with that. Like <laughs> I have a couple products that I like and I just, I just stick with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, other things that affect that balance in the microbiome, I think our soil probably isn't as rich as it used to be, especially the soil we're, we're growing these monocrops in. Yeah. Uh, the use of glyphosate, the use of antibiotics in our meat products, mm-hmm. um, you know, the over sanitization, I think, of the world, people using hand sanitizer and cleaning constantly and all the time when maybe, again, I'm not an epidemiologist or virologist or whatever, but, um, like I remember my son, my first child, when we were new parents, he was playing in the backyard in some dirt, like a young child is wont to do. <laughs> and uh, my wife got kind of concerned because he was putting his fingers in his mouth, like, oh, should we wash his hands? And I knew enough about this stuff back then to just say, no, just yeah. let him be a human child. Yeah. Let him get some some of those minerals, whatever's in that dirt. He'll, it'll likely be better for him than worse for him. Yeah. Agreed. Good job. Thanks. Let your kids eat dirt. <laughs> I make my <laughs> and kids have eat a dirt. pet, <laughs> and not wash your hands. That's very another much. thing I've heard yeah. about. The pet can help with like allergies and things because of the ways oh, yeah. certain pets, certain pets are cause people allergies. But yeah, um, yeah, because of it, it influences the bacteria in the kids' gut. Yep, pets are good. So unless just, they're like salamanders or something, I think you can get sick from, can't you, or snakes or something. Yeah, not komodo dragons. Or I'm not harshing on the reptile. Avian flu. <laughs> <laughs> Mad cow, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, I think all of those things to think about influencing the gut are really important. But, um, I mean, in my opinion, and I think a lot of people in sort of the functional lifestyle space would agree, um, that what we put in our mouth every mm. day is the most important, um, factor affecting the health of our microbiome. And the way we eat, um, driven primarily by the food industry, um, just really kind of sets us up for failure. And, um, you know, we, the agriculture, U.S. agriculture, whatever, I I don't know, something to do with U.S. agriculture, um, determined that humans eat about one ton of food per year. Oh. I mean... If you're doing that much of anything, if you're putting one ton of stuff into your body (laughs) every year and you're not very thoughtful about what that is, I think you can rest assured that there might be trouble somewhere along the way. Um, And the standard American diet, packaged, processed, sugary, salt, fatty foods that we eat, the evidence is overwhelming that um, the gut microbiome does not like that. Suffers. Suffers immensely. Um, And then trauma um, is a huge factor um, in the health of the gut microbiome. They've done studies looking, comparing um, like adverse childhood events to the health of the gut microbiome Um, and people with higher ACEs scores have less diversity. Um, So trauma is a huge factor. Um, What about infection? Infection, Viral infection, like, uh, I was going to say amoeba, but it was parasitic parasitic infection. Yeah. Any type of infection is going to upset the microbiome. So like people that get traveler's diarrhea will often have like a very disturbed gut for a very long time Mm -hmm. or actually go on to develop um, irritable bowel syndrome Mm. or even inflammatory bowel disease. So there's a lot of evidence that just like 
tipping off that that initial sort of infectious disruption of the gut microbiome can have pretty significant consequences if you don't make a concerted effort to kind of bring things back yeah. to a healthy place, right. you know? And you know what's nice about that is it is a two-way street. Like, I just remember one one study giving CBT for like a group with GI symptoms, but where they looked at the microbiome, like in those that where it was out of whack, they respond, not only responded better to the cognitive behavioral therapy around their GI distress, but the intervention actually improved their microbiome floral diversity. Um, so it was kind of, it was kind of neat and promising and gives hope to see that uh, you can restore this. So, oh, yeah. absolutely. So I'm going to betray my ignorance here. So if somebody has gut dysbiosis and they're stressed and we think that has a reason for like ex- to explain why they have gut dysbiosis and you, you address the stress, but you don't change anything else. How does that increase the, the diversity of the bacteria in their gut? If you're not introducing new bacteria, do they just, are they resurrected? Like, yeah. So it all has to do, I think with this, you know, hyperpermeability and um, the metabolic function of the bugs that are there. So if you reduce inflammation and you improve the integrity of the lining and you sort of restore the environment to some sense of homeostasis, then, I mean, the bugs are changing all the time. Mm. Like, it's just like you can feed somebody something and then do a stool analysis and their gut will, their Um, microbiome will look totally different Mm. or like marathon runners you send marathoners out on a marathon and they come back they test their poop before and after and it looks completely different because of the stress Mm. so like this is this is not a static thing it's very dynamic and that's what's so amazing about our body is that like we can help people with behavioral intervention and lifestyle intervention and like they will feel better Mm -hmm. just by doing Mm -hmm. that. And I think it's all, a lot of it is related to the health of the gut. So, um, yeah, I always tell people like your gut is so resilient, like you can resurrect it pretty quickly. Mm. Yeah. Was it, uh, just kind of amazing. Hippocrates who said all disease begins in the gut. Um, I don't know if it was a pot. I don't some old, 2,000-year-old wise person. I think it was, yeah. And it's true. How? Yeah, very wise. Let food be thy medicine yeah, or something like yeah. that. <laughs> all that stuff. Yeah. It wasn't all black bile and yellow bile back then. They, had, they were onto some stuff. <laughs> Interesting that that bile theory, early, early theory of like mental health conditions and depression was around gut stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Even they if it was so a little smart. off. <laughs> and they ate a lot better back then. Yeah. Well, people talk about the blue zones, right? Places on the planet where people live for a long time. And a lot of them, from what I understand, are like the lifestyle and the access to food is very similar to what our ancestors might have done. Like they're in usually in hilly terrains, there's lots of, you know, walking against gravity. uh, And they usually, you know, have a more diverse microbiome because they don't have a lot of pesticides and herbicides in their food. And they're eating a more well-balanced diet. At least these are the things I've read. Great wine. Yes. yes. Speaking <laughs> of great wine. So from what I uh, understand, wine, like a lot of the wine that is made is like we've been talking about. It's also made from, 
you know, grapes that had lots of pesticides and herbicides and they're genetically modified, whatever, all this stuff. And a lot of people don't respond really well to red wine in particular that's made like that. Like they'll get more than just what alcohol will do to you, right? They'll get sick, they'll get headaches, get brain fog. But there are wines out there that, you know, are marketed as clean wines. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had some from a particular company. That, uh, I met the owner and he gave me like nine bottles of wine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lucky. Yeah. Lucky. Yeah. Where are they? Uh, they're hidden. <laughs> hidden where we read can't find them. Well, I'm happy to share. We should have a little, little tasting. Next podcast. Yeah. yeah. But I told him about how these wines, you know, uh, like crappy wine has affected me. And he's like, well, this won't. And he was right. It was mm. it was pretty incredible. What was right. it? Placebo? Yeah. Could have been. <laughs> Could have been. I'm not ruling yeah. out placebo. Yeah, no, I think that has to do with like tannins, the amount of tannins in the organic like in different grape skins or whatever, right? It like saccharides or and something. And like the or... health of the soil and stuff like that. But yeah. And on your feet as you stomp on right. them and squash the grapes. And, and how convincing the person is that gave you the wine bottle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All those factors. That might have affected it. All of those factors. Right. How nice the bottle looks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The branding. Yeah. I'm not above a good placebo effect. <laughs> So what can we do to positively impact our gut microbiome? Um, We've mentioned probiotics. We kind of touched on prebiotics. Can you talk more about what a prebiotic is? Prebiotic fibers or like what does it mean? Yeah, prebiotic foods um, feed the gut microbiome, the microbiota, the bugs. Um, They love to ferment prebiotic foods. Um, and helps increase diversity and improve their metabolic function. So more short-chain fatty acid production, um, better neurotransmitter production, possibly. There's not a lot of good data on that, but some. Um, so prebiotic foods, um, everybody's always talking about the Jerusalem artichoke, which like it's <laughs> elusive. I've not yet, they're sun chokes, but like they're really hard to find. And they're really hard to cook. But anyway, the sunchoke or the Jerusalem artichoke. But easy things, um, bananas, garlic, red onions, asparagus are all good forms of prebiotic um, Mm -hmm. fiber. And um, if I have people that have disrupted gut, I try to focus on prebiotic foods before probiotic foods um, because or putting them on probiotics. Because if you put probiotics into a really unhealthy gut, it can create a lot of problems hmm. because it will start hmm. to feed the dysbiosis. And so you'll end up with a lot of bloating, a lot of constipation, really more so than diarrhea. Um, and so I try to really focus on prebiotic foods first and helping people sort of clean up the gut and sleep better and like all of the lifestyle things and then add in probiotics like further down the line Um, because like I said earlier like you can't probiotic away a standard American diet right so so um, let's let's say somebody comes into you and they're a complete mess they you know their diet uh, sort of meets this description of standard American diet Um, what would be like the easiest but yet effective lightest lift for them to change in their diet would it be like a fiber supplement, like flax or something like that? Like what, what would it be? What would be the smallest thing they could do? Stop drinking sugary substances and drink water instead. Okay. That's what I start people with. That's what I encourage people mm-hmm. to do first. Um, sugar is so destructive to the gut microbiome. 
and to excessive the sugar, right? Excessive sugar. Cause like some we need, we need. Oh yeah. I mean like sugar from fruits and things like that is fine, but right. I'm talking Refined, about like excessive the sugars. sugar that all of us are getting from soda and Starbucks and candy and packaged foods, right. you know? Um, but I don't even focus on the foods. I just say, how many sugary drinks do you drink per day? And I think the average intake, average American intake is like three sugary drinks a day or something. I should have looked at this, th those slides before I came in, but, um, just having people cut out sugary drinks and replace it with water, um, or green tea, mm. um, is a great way to start. And that's usually honestly where I'll start with people. Um, I like that. it makes them feel better too. It decreases mm -hmm. brain fog. It improves their energy. Um, it stabilizes blood sugar, which we talked about last time, like, mm -hmm. uh, a big sugar dump, um, because of a lot of insulin can make people feel really depressed, um, and cause a lot of mood lability. So, um, you're helping the gut, you're improving blood sugars. It helps with mood. That is honestly the first thing I do. And yeah. people feel so much better. It's such a straightforward intervention. Yeah. Uh, probably not easy for a lot of people. There have been times in my life where I was, uh, it was usually like the artificially sweetened beverages, like the diet stuff. But yeah, yeah where I was uh, pretty hooked on that stuff. So it might be hard for some people, especially if it's connected to caffeine, right? So if they can replace their caffeine intake with something like, you said tea. Yeah, tea or coffee with like not a lot of added sugars. But mm. honestly, a lot of times by... The time people get to me, they are looking for lifestyle interventions sure. or like everything else has sort of not worked out. Um, and it can be really powerful thing for them to do. And they're actually pretty open to it. Mm. Um, but the thing that's really cool about that intervention that I love, especially if it's a mom um, is that then it stops it for the whole family right. a lot yeah. of the time. So I love that about lifestyle medicine is really like, um, community medicine mm. because it, it trickles out, especially if it's a mom. I think about that when I'm at the grocery store, I think about the decisions I make have these systemic ripple effects in what's going to be eaten in my household. It's so true. Yep. Yeah, we can give somebody a medicine, but if we give them like a different way of feeding themselves or a healthy sleep routine, chances are it it disseminates yeah. throughout the family, mm -hmm. um, which is pretty cool. I uh, cut you off earlier when you were talking about sleep and how it affects the biome. Could you say more about that? Yeah, people that um, don't get enough sleep have less microbial diversity and they have less resilience to stress. So stress has a greater impact on the gut. Mm -hmm. Um, so sleep is probably, probably the second most important thing that people can do, um, to help improve their, their mi microbial diversity and, and help heal their gut. Truly sleep is restorative. Sleep is also a time when we have a lot of cellular turnover. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, I told you that there's just one cell layer thick in the gut and it's always turning over. And a lot of that work is done while we're sleeping. Mm -hmm. And so sleep is really important for, um, 
for the gut, for the brain, for everything, for cleaning up all that stuff in the brain. Microglia are active at night, um, mostly. So, um, yeah, sleep is really important for a lot of different reasons. Throw out the Kool-Aid, the Sunny Delight, get some sleep. Sleep. What about exercise? Does that You mentioned the marathoners. That had me intrigued. Yeah. I mean, it's the old advice that will always remains the good advice. Get enough sleep. Don't stress out too much. Eat a healthy diet. Get <laughs> some exercise. Drink water. Why do these keep showing up? I know. <laughs> Somebody's trying to tell us something. <laughs> Maslow. <laughs> take care of the foundation before you, uh, you build on it. Oh, we were just talking about that. Yeah. 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 Bottom of the pyramid Bottom stuff. Bottom of the pyramid. Yeah. Yeah. Exercise improves um, microbial diversity. Mm. So, but it's it has to I be bet. like a certain, t- it has to be like the not too little, not too much happy medium. So, so keep- only Pilates. That's yes, the only form only of exercise. Only yoga and Pilates. Right. I don't know. I'd say Pilates can be pretty intense. <laughs> no, I, I, my and wife walk- took me to a Pilates class once and it destroyed me. <laughs> oh yeah. It's <laughs> so hard. So is like hard yoga, but I'm mm-hmm. talking more like, um, What's the word I'm thinking of? Like people who do a lot of exercise. Ultra marathon, like, over-exercise, yeah. yeah. Or the way Steve goes so hard that he ripped his shoulder myself, yeah. out of its socket. I'm an all-or-nothing <laughs> exerciser, yeah. I'm either <laughs> on the couch or I'm is. blowing myself up. <laughs> That's totally how my husband is. I'm like, yeah. can't you just find like the happy medium? Mindful oh. lifting, Steve. <laughs> I'm to trademark that. Let's do that yeah. one, Reed. Yeah, mindful, mindful lifting. Mindful exercise. Um, but like marathoners, ultra marathoners, just marathoners in general, but like triathletes, ultra marathoners, they have less microbial diversity and a lot of gut hyperpermeability because of cortisol. Yeah. Um, so it's like, not too little, not too much. Yeah, but, there's um, a there's a yeah. sweet spot for sure. Yeah. That I mean, it's like stress in general. Like there's, if you don't have any, like we were talking about with kids, or you live in a bubble, yeah, yeah you don't develop these necessary things like an immune system. You have too much stress. Like there's that you stress part of the curve. That's mm-hmm. a sweet spot. And, you know, I believe there is that component of listening to your body and what it has to tell you that goes a long way. Yeah, like the allostatic load, um, mm-hmm. like an HPA axis. Um, a lot of work in the HPA axis area, they talk a lot about allostatic load. So, like, we have to have some stress, we have to have some cortisol, epinephrine, norepinephrine for sure. Like, it helps us be creative, it helps us have yeah. energy, it helps us um, with resilience, you right. know. But, like, once we start to tip that balance, um, towards sort of this constant activation of the HPA axis, things can really kind of go out of whack. So yeah, I've heard that talked about as like you know the difference between distress and eustress yeah. or hormesis, you know, hormetic stressors. This is a mm-hmm. a type of stressor that uh, triggers an adaptive response, right? Oh, right? So sauna might be a good example of that, or a cold plunge. Mm-hmm. This is an extreme environmental stressor that the body then responds to by developing resilience and health. Yeah. Um, mm. That's technically yeah. what, what immune, the immune system is, right? It's a response to a hormetic stressor. And it's a concept that applies not just to stress when you're in school and studying or to your immune system, but like we use it in therapy a lot with that window of tolerance mm-hmm. and that zone that you can do the work in. But beyond that, you're just like, you can't do a whole lot if you're in full-blown fight or flight yeah. or if you're asleep. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, shout out to our last episode about being triggered. 
we talked a lot about how you can use triggers as pathways to understanding. Yeah. Um, but only if you're willing to engage with those triggers. But as Reed said, you know, if the triggers are totally, you know, sending off all the alarm bells and blowing your resilience to that particular trigger, then it's, it's, you're not in a position to learn very much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We just need everything just right. <laughs> Homeostasis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, any, any other ways we can influence the health of our gut that we haven't already talked about? We had some foods. Stress management. S- yeah. So mind, body. Oh, yeah. Um, interventions, I think, are really, really inter- important. Mm-hmm. Um, acupuncture, yoga. Eating a variety of foods. Bod- oh, what about body work? Like, like energy like, work? Like, uh, I was thinking more. Mas- I was showing the, before we hit record, I showed these these guys uh, oh. a picture of the cupping that the I had cupping. done on my skin. <laughs> it's hard to believe that that was good for me, given that I look at pepperoni pizza uh-huh. with all the bruises. But <laughs> like, I I'm wonder. not aware of any studies looking at cupping and microbial diversity, <laughs> but I would venture to guess that there would be some positive effect. Perhaps. Perhaps. I'm going to choose to believe that. You should PubMed that. Yeah, I'm going to look that up. Cupping hmm. and microbial diversity. Reed, you, you were t- I cut you off. You were talking about diversity of foods. Oh. So not being too dogmatic or restrictive. Yeah, it brings up a shout out to Michael Pollan, who mm. before he became one of the most famous psychedelic writers, uh, wrote about food. And mm. like for years, I loved the mantra from one of his books of eat real food, mostly plants and not too much. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and personally, I like to keep some resilience and some good kind of stress in what I eat and not be so restrictive because I've spent lots of time like staying far away from sugar or other things. But the fact of the matter is I like to be able to enjoy a piece of cake once in a while, mm-hmm. right? And But if you're so um, avoidant of certain things, then when they come along, it might uh, throw your system for a loop or you might feel it as more shocking. So that's a personal approach I like is keeping that flexibility. Yeah, I think flexibility is is good. I think diversity, so diversity of foods equals diversity of microbiome. So um, the more colors we can eat, like more phytonutrients are the colors in like vegetables. Um, and the more colors we can eat, the better. Um, I have this really cool handout that I give my patients. It's called Eat the Rainbow or something, phytonutrient spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, like try to pick a food of a different color um, for every day of the week when you go to the grocery store. Um, like I'll tell people, take your kids and have your pig- kids pick out like a co- different yeah. colors of foods to put in the basket and make sure you that's have fun. everything, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's a great way to do it. And red 40 and yellow five and, and green seven, those don't those count. Those don't right? count. Yeah. Okay. So the Kool-Aid and the Otter Pops are not included in that. This would be the outside of the grocery store in the, in the produce section. Right. Right. But, um, and the other thing I was going to say too, is, you know, getting back to the conversation about like, this isn't about body image or mm. what we look like. Um, I don't ever call things a diet. Like I just like, I hate the word diet. Mm. It's yeah. like a food plan or nutritional medicine or something like that. Like a very positive spin on how we talk to patients about what they're eating. Mm-hmm. Like going on a diet is not going to fix your microbiome, but Increasing fiber and increasing diversity 
and being thoughtful about what you put in the gut, that will move the mark. Like there's no diet that's going to help your gut microbiome or your brain or anything else, you know? And besides, we can't stick to diets anyway. Like they don't really work. I mean, the Mediterranean diet has more data around it for healthy weight, blood sugar management, hypertension, but that's not really a diet. It's like more of good a lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. It's a way of feeding your body foods that are meaningful, you mm. know, instead of just filling it up with like mm. junk, you know? So I try to talk to patients about that even if they're concerned about their weight. I'm like, let's not worry about your weight. Let's worry about feeding your body healthy foods. Mm -hmm. And the weight usually follows. Like it just, it just happens, you know? You know, I've been mystified about why it's so hard to eat healthy foods as, you know, mm -hmm. to, to make those, for a lot of us, to make those choices. Like why it's, it can feel so emotionally difficult to stay out of the center aisles and eat real food, mostly plants, you know, and not too much. Uh, and I've heard that sometimes, depending on the, the imbalance in the gut, that the bacteria that are in there can influence your hunger cravings. Like they, yeah. can, they can essentially be calling for more of the processed sugar because those are the, the bacteria that have been fed so much. They're the ones that are dominating the space. Is that a thing? Yeah, and that probably has to do with um, HPA axis okay. and vagal nerve innervation. Do, were you going to say something? Did I cut you off? No, I'm just thinking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that probably has a lot to do with that. And it also has to do with um, leptin and ghrelin and mm. cortisol and blood sugar um, dysfunction. Yeah, so, a crash after high, mm -hmm. like low glycemic index foods and well i've noticed yeah. if i if i go from a time in my life where i'm eating lots of processed food to not eating lots of processed food there's there's like a detox period where i'm yes. craving the garbage mm -hmm. but after a while i stop like i actually would prefer, like the other day i went home and i really wanted a pickle oh right yeah. it just it just oh so good nice yeah. class and pickle we mentioned a brand. Klassen doesn't sponsor us. <laughs> but so good. And, you know, in other times in my life, I'd get home and the first thing I'm thinking about is a bowl of ice cream or something like mm -hmm. that. So yeah. your your cravings can change if if uh, you give it time and consistency. Well, and that has a lot to do with the HPA axis, actually. So um, when we use risky substances, like any substance, um, including these really highly palatable packaged processed foods in the center of the grocery store, um, those all calm down that HPA axis. So they mm. reduce cortisol, epinephrine, and norepinephrine. That's why after you eat a Big Mac or after you smoke methamphetamine, your anxiety mm -hmm. feels like less in the moment. Um, it has to do with dopamine too. But, but then once the food or the substance or whatever it is goes away, that HPA axis like fires up mm. and you get this rebound anxiety or the negative affective state of risky substance use is withdrawal. Um, a, most of that is mediated by this HPA axis and cortisol. And it's the same exact thing with food. Mm. And that's why people in early recovery gain so much weight because they trans, well, Behavior I swapping. Say transfer. Yeah. yeah. It's behavior swapping or trans the transfer addiction transfer hypothesis, which is 
controversial, but mm-hmm. um, has everything to do with wanting to hang on to dopamine yeah, calm and the nervous keep system. the HPA axis quiet. And um, it's, yeah, it that's a huge reason people gain so much weight in recovery. But mm. that's why you crave that because it makes your brain feel better. Right. Like oh, I it know. makes us feel good. <laughs> and then we feel like garbage afterwards. And so the cycle just continues. Yeah, the comparison of a Big Mac to meth was apt, I feel. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, that was probably not very nice, but <laughs> but it's but it's kind of it's kind of true. Yeah. There's this uh thing in New York City called crack pie. There are long lines to get it. Mm-hmm. It's by the the guys who do that restaurant Momofoku. <laughs> that, oh, like yeah. a really good noodle bar. But they have a dessert yeah. one where they have cereal milk ice cream, but the crack pie is good. I was I was served <laughs> a dessert called Better Than Sex Cake. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the first time I had it was before I'd ever had sex. So I was like, well, I'll take his word for it. But uh, once I had had sex, I think sex was better. But the cake you was think? really, really good. <laughs> yeah. What kind of cake was it? It was like a multi-layer, like, you know, whipped cream fudge, like a brownie layer. Uh, and it had something crunchy in there. So it was like oh, an entire, <laughs> like, like sex, I guess. It was a multi-sensory experience. So if you mm. think about the evolutionary roots, though, like dopamine... Like and its role in propagating the species, both like it, it exists for you to seek food so you don't die, and also to reproduce so your DNA doesn't die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and those are powerful forces. And then you know these days it's kind of gets messed up and wires crossed because the first thing we ever have to self soothe, like fall off your bike, oh here's some ice cream, oh, totally. and uh, it creates this habit cycle. Right. Right. Yeah. When I was a fellow in addiction, I worked at a publicly funded residential program, and I did a 12-week lifestyle curriculum called Wellness and Recovery, where we talked about all of this kind of stuff. And at this program, I love this program, and they're not any different from any other program, but they would have Kool-Aid available all the time, Mm. like free, no coffee, can't have coffee, but you can have unlimited access to Kool-Aid. And Mm -hmm. um, so the challenge every week became don't drink the (laughs) Kool-Aid. That's good advice generally. And also don't have the like tiramisu or cookies or whatever they gave people at 9 o'clock at night right Mm. before bed. Um, And when people stopped doing that, their – craving for substances decreased too. Hmm. And it was pretty amazing. So Mm. like there's like such a strong connection. Yeah, there are connections for sure. Yeah. What do you think of donuts in the doctor lounge at the hospital? (laughs) Don't, like don't even get me started. (laughs) Like it, anyway. It's a staple of modern healthcare survival. Yeah. Hospital (laughs) food, doctor's lounges, like how we feed people in recovery, like, yeah, it's, it's so broken that, um, it's really, it's sad, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a part of me that's very judgmental and it's only a part of me. Chill out people. But like, (laughs) I, I remember as a kid going into a doctor's office and my doctor seemed really unhealthy and just thinking, this is the person that's going to give me advice on how to be unhealthy. And, you know, none of us are perfect. All of my clients have come into my office and have been helped by a very imperfect man. 
somebody who struggles with his mental health. So it's not like I need a person to be perfect, but yeah, that contrast was sometimes alarming to me. Yeah. It's pretty alarming to go to the doctor's lounge and not only see the food, but see the health of the doctors that are in the doctor's lounge. Yeah. I I should say the medical profession itself seems like it's not super conducive to health. Like the way you two describe medical school. No, thanks. Not that not that getting a PhD was easy, but like uh-huh. <laughs> medical school does not sound like a walk in the park. It sounds like it's it's a great way to shorten your lifespan. Doctors don't live as long. No. Yeah, and in part it's because of how we take care of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, burnout's a big deal. Yeah, a lot of doctors kind of put themselves on the altar of their work to help people, and and uh, it's a sacrifice that I don't think is necessary. Like I, yeah. I feel like we we have to be able to come up with a way to educate and train helping professionals and structure their professions in a way that doesn't, doesn't ring them out. Yeah. All of us. I mean, you guys too. I mean, you guys have a ton of school and stressful to go through your, all of your supervision, right. And like long hours and yeah, it's a lot of work. All of us that are in well, frontline cap. That's why. Yeah. That's a big reason. Yeah. Frontline cap being our, uh, pilot program f- using ketamine-assisted psychotherapy in a group format for healthcare workers with uh, significant burnout stress, uh, which is most healthcare workers. Let's yeah. be honest. And yeah. uh, but I like to, you know, remember and point out that it's not a selfish endeavor to take time to take care of yourself to fill your own cup so you can actually be the best at what you do in the healing arts and the helping professions and in all the ways you touch people and help people throughout life, whatever kind of job you do. Like, I think it's just so important to remember to, you know, take some time to take care of yourself. Yeah. So important. Awesome. Well, I think we're at time folks. Thank you so much, Amy, for coming back and talking talking about poop and, uh, and bugs (laughs) and (laughs) all the stuff we love to talk about. Yeah. Appreciate it. Great fun. Yeah. As always. Till next time. Thank you, dear listener, for listening. It means a lot to me. Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Novamind, a mental health company that specializes in psychedelic medicine and research. You can learn more about Novamind's mission to increase access to legal, safe, and evidence-based psychedelic medicine at novamind.ca. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen or watch. Also, if you're feeling generous today, please leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you'd like to reach out to us with questions, suggestions, scathing criticisms, etc., please email us at psychfrontiers at novamind.ca. Thanks again. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others, and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.